know what that means. From WANU 88.5 at American University in Washington, welcome to the Kojo Nam, the show connecting your neighborhood with the world and the computer guys and gal. Yes, they are here. Allison Druin is chief futurist at the University of Maryland Division of Research and co-director of the Future of Information Alliance at the University of Maryland. Hi, Allison. Hi, Kojo. Bill Harlow is hardware and software technician for Macs and PCs at Mid-Atlantic Consulting Incorporated. Hi, Bill. Hello. And John Gilroy is director for business development for BLT Global Ventures. Hi, John. And I'm director of the future as well for that company. You, you scare me. Oh, my God. You're director You're in charge of the, of the future. future. You should know. <laughs> Spring is here, and cross-pollination is creating new partnerships in the tech industry. IBM and Apple are working together on software for the iPad, and Microsoft is making it easier to convert Android and iOS apps to run on the new Windows 10 ecosystem. The collaborations are blurring brand lines in the interest of the bottom line. What we'd like to know from you is what apps would you like to run on Windows? Give us a call at 800-433-8850, or how can IBM help improve your iPad experience? You can also send us an email to kojo at wamu.org or a tweet at Kojo Show using the hashtag TechTuesday. Allison, how did this collaboration between Apple and IBM get started, and what new iPad apps are we likely to see as a result? Well, this is fascinating because, um, honestly, Apple and IBM in the same sentence is not a usual thing, yeah? <laughs> not at all. Yes, all right. And to think that Apple is the stronger of the two partners. Uh, so that, uh, that's also a big deal. But basically, both are doing what they do best. So Apple um, is, is saying, hey, folks, tablets, iPhones, um, you know, build apps for them. And, in fact, IBM is doing what it's doing best, which is building apps. Um, they've made actually 22 already, 22 mobile apps for the tablet and phone and some for even the watch. So we're talking about checking your bank statements from your watch, reboot, uh, you know, uh, rebooking flights and so on from, uh, from your tablet. Um, they're actually, their goal is to create 100 apps um, in the coming year um, for uh, for the, the Apple products. You know, folks are just mixing it up and saying, hey, let's do it. In fact, they're even working with the postal system in Japan um, between IBM and Apple. So Apple's given the hardware and um, and IBM is working on the on the software, and they're actually working to support the elderly with better um, uh, with better applications that help for their vision uh, that help with um, seeing things and hearing things um, for the postal service of all things. So IBM is cleverly making this look like a collaboration. When in fact, it wants to become the big kid on the block again. They really are trying. But I here's the bottom line is that you've got to have to be agnostic in this world. Because if you, if you have a religion about we're only putting this stuff on this or that, unless you're Apple, nobody's going to, no one's going to play with you. And you really do need Apple at this point, which is Joining really the agnostic club bill is Microsoft. It's also making overtures to app designers. Software Giant is going to make it easier to tweak Android and iOS apps so they'll work in the Windows 10, too. How does that move reflect Microsoft's willingness to ease up on dominance so that it can add new breath? Well, I think they need apps, so I think that's really what it boils down to. Um, so in the case of the Android um, uh, compatibility, that's a little more interesting in, in some ways. I don't know if it's going to be a great user experience because it's cool that you can take a native Android app and run it in Windows 10, but... I always have problems with the idea of taking something made for one platform and just running it as is on another one. But it's a quick and dirty way of doing it. The uh, iOS uh, demonstration is a little more interesting because the idea with that is, hey, here's a really quick way to just take your existing app, port it over with minimal effort, and get started right away, kind of hit the ground running. So if people take advantage of that to actually make uh, more bespoke feeling with those 10 apps, then that's uh, that's uh, very useful. Yeah, IBM's changing, Apple's changing, and also Microsoft is changing. And I'll tell you a story that illustrates that real well. On Saturday morning, I was cutting the grass, minding my own business, and I look up and I see a car a few blocks away, and it had like a camera on top. I forgot it was a Google car. It came closer to me. It was a Bing car taking photographs. So so Microsoft is is moving in many different areas simultaneously. They're, they're making friends or making good friends with Apple. They're also making friends with something called the subscription-based economy. We've talked about this before. And um, uh, they don't want to sell boxes anymore. They want to sell subscriptions. So this whole modality of IBM hates Apple, Apple hates... No, no, no. They're working together. And Microsoft and Apple are... No, they're working together too. And uh, I just see this, this whole morphing of the whole world is, is changing right in front of our very own. You don't seem to realize you lost Apple 
Allison and Bill and I with the part about cutting your grass. After that, we knew that nothing could possibly be true. Um, <laughs> Microsoft is looking to move to a subscription model also? Yeah, that's a, uh, you know, what I see with IBM is IBM saying, hmm, you know, 12 quarters of declining revenue, we have to move into data analytics, the cloud mobile. And uh, Microsoft is looking at their revenue. Now, they're making money, but they're saying, guess what? Just because we made money doesn't mean anything. We've got to make more money and compete because they're looking at Google and they're looking at some stuff, the tough competition with Amazon. And so they're looking at the cloud mobile as well. And, and that's one play with the mobile is allowing apps to run on, on the, the 2.7% of the folks out there with those Windows phones. They all like their phones. But, you know, it's actually, Kojo, this is sort of like the library model. It used to be when people said, hey, that's a great library. They have how many books? They have how many, um, you know, archives and so on. Now, libraries are going to a subscription model, too. They're saying, hey, this is, you know, these journals are great, but do we really need to house them? Do we need to? And it's, it's in some sense, people are getting more used to that for their own personal um, use as well, as well as for their companies. The, the classic subscription company is Salesforce. I was and about to get to that. There are rumors now that <laughs> yep. Microsoft may be buying out Salesforce. It's like, wait a minute, they're just switching completely around from the old buy a box to the Well, Salesforce tell our model. listeners what Salesforce Salesforce does. Well, what happens is, let's say uh, you work for Kojo Industries, and you hire Allison to develop a customer relationship management system for you, and you pay her $200,000 a year, and she has 10 developers working for her, and you go, well, I'm sick of this. This is not working. And so they come up with something like Salesforce, where they go, hey, 120 bucks a month, $85 a month, I will subscribe to a, a customer relationship system where I can store all my customer contacts Allison, on I'm that. sorry you're out of a, a job now, but them's the <laughs> yeah, breaks. Them's the breaks, Allison. Oh, so well. it's, it's moving to the cloud, and that's what Salesforce does. It helps people uh, manage your contacts in the cloud. Okay, let's talk about the apps and other digital tools that are popping up to fill unmet needs, from finding missing relatives after an earthquake to fact-checking photos that go viral but appear to be a little fishy to finally getting your own photos into a manageable cloud storage system. You can call us. Where do you store your photos? 800-433-8850. Allison, imagine being caught up in a natural disaster like the earthquake in Nepal and being cut off from your family. Are you safe? Do they know you're okay? How can apps connect people in times of upheaval? Yeah, this is interesting. Um, there's a Facebook app that actually um, tracks if you obviously turn it on. Now, let's just remind you, yourself, okay, this is not a default, all right? Um, but if you allow Facebook to let um, to track where you are, and if you're within a certain range of a, of a disaster... They will actually ping you. They will actually send you a message um, over Facebook. And they are you will, okay? Are you okay? You know, it's like, you know, my dad, are you okay? Are you all right? Um, and if you say, and if you, if you send back an email uh, or, uh, sorry, a message, um, then they will, act, and, and you acknowledge that you would like to send that out to all of your friends, it, that will be sent out to all of your friends, which is actually very useful for many uh, for many people in these kind of you know emergency situations that may only have very little battery life, that may only have the ability to think about one message before it goes out, which is great. Um, Google's got a person finder kind of thing, which is actually a little bit more than um, more than what Facebook has, but it's uh, you know the that that uh that's actually creating a database of missing people um and they use sms for that so but it's really important because you know people want to know if you're okay sms is texting of course as we all know oh thank you very much technology can also help sort out what's really happening in conflicts like the protests in baltimore last week images of Looting and other violence went viral, but not all of those images were legit. How can we fact-check some of these photos that flood social media? Yeah, you know, you've got to be careful about this um, because it may seem like it's obvious, oh, my goodness, look at all that looting, broken glass, blah, blah. KFC burning. Oh, yeah, but, you know, it turns out that all you've got to do is um, you go to Google, okay, and there's a little camera on the yep. right side of your um, of your search box okay and instead of typing in um instead of typing in a keyword click on the camera and then what it's going to come up is a little box that says search google with an image instead of text try dragging the image here and so then you drag the image there and you can find out the provenance you can find out the the source of that photo and 
was there were some really sort of sad photos that were were going around virally that were wrong that were just you know from three in months the case ago. of the KFC oh. that was reportedly looted and trashed in Baltimore. It turned out that that photo was taken in Karachi, Pakistan exactly. in 2012. <laughs> exactly. It's terrible. So, you know, be very careful about what you retweet. And, and if you question it, you know, check question out. Question everything, your... too, is rather important. That, yeah. uh, that service, by the way, protects professional photographers and artists because if Bill takes a picture, someone could steal that and that right. protects him. I mean, I, I love the service. We yeah. have more on the tools to fact-check photos at our website or at Kojo Show on the blog. You can find it there. But why do people post fake photos? And how often do you think it happens? And how much should we believe on social media? I've got two mm. answers there. How often? All the time. What should we believe? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> at, least, at least at first, don't take anything at face value because you don't know. And it's probably fun for some people to do this and, and mess with us. Yeah, well, people do do it all the time and people do believe them. Bill, another tool most of us need and probably don't use enough is photo storage. What are the best options for clearing pictures off your phone and storing them in the cloud? Well, the, uh, there, there, are a whole, there are a whole bunch out there. Um, if you're an Apple user, um, one thing that Apple's uh, pushing pretty heavily is the iPhoto library uh, in the cloud. And it's subscription-based, and the idea behind that is that you can take photos, and you know, whether you took them with your phone or you have a camera and, and save them to your computer, it'll, they'll put them in the cloud for you. Um, but that's really specific to Apple products. Um, Dropbox has something called a carousel, and if you store a lot of photos in Dropbox, then um, if people download this app, it's a really nice way of, uh, of uh, presenting your photos and sharing with people. Uh, Google Plus actually is kind of uh, popular with photographers because it's got a really attractive layout. Um, it's free, and it also allows you to upload fairly high-res photos too. So if you want something that actually looks pretty nice, bigger than a typical web image, uh, that's uh, pretty great. There are a whole bunch in the link. There, there are a couple that um, people liked as well, like Everpix, which is kind of ironic because they're now gone. Um, I was about to say. And that's why I think the ones that have been around for a while, like Apple, like uh, like Smug Mug, which is actually one of the most expensive ones, but geared more towards uh, serious uh, pros or amateurs, um, those might be the, the way to look because uh, the cloud is only effective if you know Yeah, but what happens there. if they go out of business? Everpix went out of business, and um, another cloud photo storage organization Picture Life sold itself to Stream Nation. Right. That's people's great fear about relying on cloud storage. What happens to my photos when these companies close now? Well, you've got to read the uh, end-user license agreement very carefully, <laughs> find out what, what rights right. you have, um, what, what they may do with it, um, what they might do if they uh, you know, have to uh, liquidate their assets. But businesses would never rely on one source. Anyway, you distribute. You'd have um, maybe a, a data in one place, another place, and well, in the server case of, somewhere. So I would have it in two or three places. Right. In the case of, if, of this sort of photo storage, you want to copy on your computer as as well as on the cloud, and maybe an additional backup beyond that. Yeah, because photos are pretty much one of our most important records of who yeah. we are. And, you know, it's sort of sad because we don't have scrapbooks anymore. We have them online, and we've really got to think about our personal memories, you know. Well, here's some interesting comments we got about Apple. Um, one of them, an email from Sean, who says, I hope... IBM continues to realize success and remains uniquely innovative and stays away from black hole monetary maximizers like Apple. Apple is a fad maker. <laughs> IBM is a value maker. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that from an IBM.com email address? <laughs> really? Yes. To the gets the public impression. relations at IBM.com? <laughs> One does get the impression that Sean favors IBM. But here, another criticism of, of, of Apple coming from Deborah in Alexandria, Virginia. Deborah, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Uh, good afternoon. It, it really isn't a criticism of Apple per se, but it may rain on Sean's parade. Um, <laughs> I had an, had an opportunity to be bi-coastal and spent three weeks uh, living in Southern California. And I happened to catch a news article while I was out there, and it, it, it's listed in April on the CNET website. Apple had a $30 million contract with the, the Los Angeles School District, which is the second largest in the country. And Pearson was supposed to be supplying, you know, the interactive apps so that this would work. And quite literally, sometimes the pads would just crash. And they stopped the project. And if I remember hearing right, at this point, they were just asking for $3 million, uh, for $3 million back from Apple because it didn't integrate properly. Now, I'm a longtime Mac user. I, I, I bleed Apple green. 
uh, every device I have in the house. And um, I, I know they like to do things once and do it right. Rarely do they go oops. And that doesn't seem like that's the type of experience they want to be known for with their, you know, educational tools. It would kind of kind of dissuade other uh, school districts for, for doing that. And that, that was my comment. So you think that's why Apple is partnering with other companies? Um, I think as someone who works with and lives with an engineer and a lawyer, you want the best supplier uh, of services when your name is on it. Uh, because if the suppliers or what do they provide for you, the services aren't any good, they say Apple's bad. They don't say you know, the supplier of XYZ or whomever, it reflects on their name. You make know, a good that, point. That, that's, and it's, it's monetary. And I heard something, though I can't, I can't give an attribution to this. Someone along said, and then there's this inquiry by DOJ. I'm living in Washington, D.C. It's like, oh, well, another one. But um, anyway, that, I, I think that maybe they're trying to do it right Okay. So there are art limitations on the iPad going forward. Okay. Um, well, it's it, it, it's an interesting um, uh, case you, you cite. Um, it is about that partnership of if you're not going to do the software and Pe- you're going to have Pearson do that software, you have to be sure that that software has the same cultural values, the same interface mechanisms that make sense for your hardware. Um, and Pearson is a, you know, is obviously a, a wonderful, you know, uh, name in the educational business uh, for many, many years. But to be honest with you, they're uh, they're known for being a more traditional educational um, uh, system than uh, what the kinds of things that are traditionally that have been more currently on tablets and uh, and mobile devices. So it doesn't surprise me there was an incompatibility. Um, I would, you know, I I agree. Apple's got to. Apple's got to um, make sure that whoever they, they partner with has got to do the right thing. My understanding is their partnership with IBM is a deeper partnership, not just something that's more surface level, such as both sell iPads, you supply an app. Yes, exactly, exactly. Thank you very much for your call. Got to take a short break. When we come back, you can still join the conversation by calling 800-433-8850. I'm Kojona. And good afternoon. You're listening to the Kojo Namdi Show. This is WAMU 88.5. It's 1224. Help support your favorite shows on the station by donating your used car, truck, or boat. Find out more at 866-926-8444 or visit WAMU.org and click on support. Becoming mostly cloudy today with numerous showers, isolated thunderstorms, and a high of 84. Wherever you spend your morning, NPR's Morning Edition is there with you. Wherever the story takes place, NPR's Morning Edition connects it to you. Dallas. Des Moines. Topeka. Montana. Cleveland. San Francisco. Denver. Philadelphia. Minneapolis. Miami. Colorado. Washington. You will own your morning wherever you are when you tune in tomorrow for Morning Edition from NPR News. Weekday mornings from 5 to 9 on WAMU 88.5. Support for WAMU 88.5 comes from General Dynamics IT Cloud Solutions, providing your enterprise with secure federal cloud solutions. General Dynamics Cloud Solutions, gdit.com slash cloud. And from Chipotle, committed to serving food sourced from family farmers who respect the land and the animals in their care. More at chipotle.com. Chipotle, food with integrity. And from Washington National Cathedral, presenting Stanley Thurston and the Washington Performing Arts Men and Women of the Gospel Choir in Get Happy, Saturday, May 9th at 7.30 p.m. More at cathedral.org slash concerts. Welcome back. The computer guys and gal are here. John Gilroy is Director for Business Development for BLT Global Ventures. Alison Druin is Chief Futurist at the University of Maryland Division of Research and Co-Director of the Future of Information Alliance at the University of Maryland. And Bill Harlow is a hardware and software technician for Macs and PCs at Mid-Atlantic Consulting Incorporated. John, we talked last month about how Verizon wireless users can opt out of a feature that tracks their web use and shares the information with third-party advertisers. Now Microsoft is apparently letting its users opt out of similar tracking. Well, this is a very curious story here. 
I think they're making this claim under the auspices of being compatible with the W3 specification. I'm not sure. I'd have to read that specification. But now they're switching back and they're saying, no, 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 we, you know, you have to opt out of this. Now, I just, I, I'm getting very uncomfortable with this. I have to see what happens with reviews of Windows 10 when it hits the streets and people take a look at it and see what's going on and what uh, Microsoft is morphing into. I just, uh, just, I'm uncomfortable with the whole idea of uh, forcing someone to learn more about opting out. But hey, we'll see how this all plays out when uh, Windows hits the street here. When, in a month or so, I'm not sure when it comes out. But the real story is they started with you have to be able to opt in. So in other words, there's this do not track option. There was at start, yeah. Okay. And so basically that was the default, do not track, um, on your on the web browser. And then um and then they decided, ooh, end quotes, they're going to be compatible with the you know, with this whatever. three Thing. But honestly, everybody knows that whatever the default is, three quarters to the majority of all people are yep. going to always take the what the default is. People actually have a harder time opting out. And so it's in obviously it's in their best interest if people don't have this do not track thing on. So. Yeah, it's not accidental. They, they they know that same stat too and they realize, you know, we make the default and it's going to happen. We'll get our way. That's right. Here now is Mike in Springfield, Virginia. Mike, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, Kojo. Thanks for taking my call. It's your friend Mike, by the way. I don't know if you remember or not, but anyway, Oh that Mike, yeah. Yeah, that Mike. <laughs> I'm thinking of going back to Microsoft after years with Mac and I'll tell you why. The Surface three is a changer. I'm not a paid endorser. I just went to the store to check it out because I need a new iPad. And its, in, it's versatility and power is amazing. I'm a freelance writer and I take pictures and I work with video. If I go on an assignment and need to take an SD card out, I have to wait for the iCloud to you know upload my pictures. But what if there is no iCloud? The, I, the Surface uh, uh, pads have uh, inputs uh, it has versatility. It has power. One last thing, the power was shown even before Windows 10 because we were at the store. Some friends and I went, fellow geeks, and the guy put the the uh, Surface 3 in a, uh, a dock in front of a 35-inch curved screen and put up four programs simultaneously, and then you could run a fifth one on the pad. So I'll take my comments off air, but I think – it's time for Apple to stop being so smug and to start thinking about what we as users need more. Thank you. Thank you very much for your call, Mike. Good to hear from you again. What do you say to this, John Gilroy? USB. <laughs> my wife's iPad doesn't have USB on it, and she's on it all the time. And I, I got a USB for this, and, and you know, I think they're all pretty equal. They're all real nice, and uh, uh, the Surface. It, Looks really good. It's good resolution. Right. It gives me the, and I, I because I'm an old IBM Microsoft person. I rely on USB for little plug-in devices. And uh, so uh, I, I agree with your friend Mike. I think it's a good product. Yeah, I think that it, it depends on you know whether or not you're looking for something that gives you more um, of a laptop-like feature set or more of a tablet. I mean, it's it's tough to compare them directly because they're different products. Especially the Surface Pro, which really is it's a traditional laptop. You know, as far as its hardware. Um, shoved into a tablet body versus an iPad, which is a much lower power device and more streamlined. And you can snap on a physical keyboard, snap it off, and right. then next turn around and get out the pen and draw something. Right. So it gives I think some it's a great product. I think for me personally, I don't like that form factor for a full machine. I like a traditional laptop, but there's no question that it's a very versatile device. But you know what was so funny? It was just now you pulled out this, you pulled out your Surface, John, okay? <laughs> yep. You handed it to Kojo, and yes. Kojo could not find the on button. Thank you. Okay. Why couldn't he find the on button? Because it was no, it was so subtly placed that he couldn't figure out where to turn the thing on. And so I'm, I'm sure he'd figure it out in his he defense. He would figure it out. But no, this is not no, about Kojo. This is not about Kojo. This is about, again, design. And honestly... You know, it's fun. You know, you certainly have functionality with that. But again, the design on some of these other um, tablets are easier for people to figure out. But it was hysterical yeah. watching Kojo I just couldn't to find the, it out. I couldn't find the power button because of the hideous case, but that's a separate issue. <laughs> well, I, I bought this Rhino case for in from. I, I tend to drop things, and so I had this case. It's probably why I couldn't find it because I have this red Rhino case on it because I a little clumsy. We got an email from Mike in Baltimore who says, Cloud storage for photos sounds good, but you should also print all images you might care about and keep them in a safe, cool place. Maybe also print duplicates and send them all over. In 20 or 50 years or more, you'll be glad you did when your, all of your digital stuff is toast. Talk about thinking ahead to the future. Mm. To a time when all of our... 
then all of our digital stuff will be yeah, toast. Yeah, but they print it out on, you know, acid paper. <laughs> exactly. What <laughs> kind of paper? Now. What yeah. kind of ink? You know, yeah, how you store question, it? You know, I, yeah, mean, I was thinking about that, too. Bill, would you like to have your online shopping purchases delivered to the trunk of your car? Amazon and Audi are testing delivery systems in Munich, Munich Germany, the does just that. How does the how does it work? Well, you know, I'd love to test this. So if anybody wants to, to uh, donate an Audi RS4, um, that would be great, and I'll let you know. So it's specific to yeah, they're testing in Germany with Audis. But the idea is you can order something, and you can uh, opt to have it delivered to your car. And DHL will get like a one-time use code where they go over to your car, the trunk opens, they put the package in, they close it, or you have a return, can't be bothered to take it down to the the, uh, the post office. Let, let, have them have them pick it up. Well, let's put two and two together here. So Kojo's got an Audi in his. A front yard, parking his driveway there, and a drone pulls up. Not a drone. No, it's not a human. A human. Opens up the trunk, puts on the rent No, it's a human. Your DHL delivery man. But yes, you know what? A drone. I want. Yes, give me the drone. That's even better. I want. I want. I want a drone to barnstorm my Audi, drop off a package, and take off. Coach will be out there with a baseball bat with a drone. The drone with the baseball. Get away from my car. Get away from my car. Children, children. This is about honestly. Now it's about laziness. They know we're lazy. Tell us what it's about, Alice. This is what it's about. How many of you want to get something delivered to your house, but then you're worried that, oh, you're not going to be home. Exactly. It's going to be left on the front porch. Someone's going to steal it. So imagine you've got your you've got your car parked in your parking lot at work and you know that it's just always going to be there and you can check at lunch that it's, someone's dumped it in your in your thing. It's great. It's a great idea. The UPS guy's going to get arrested. What are you doing with that car, buddy? <laughs> ah, it's a great idea. And believe me, you won't all have to have Audis to, have to do this someday. But anyway. that said, if someone wants me to beta test, Certainly. I'll, I'll start with an Audis. <laughs> Call tag Bill at the station. We got an email from Donna in Annapolis. Can USB sticks be used to store photos from phones easily? And do they have a shelf life? USBs, that is. Well, um, it depends on the phone. Uh, I think with uh, the iPhone, uh, I don't think it's an easy way to get the photos directly off that right to a little adapted USB stick. Uh, but that said, the USB, these USB sticks, they're, they're for convenience. They're kind of, I look at them like the modern floppy disk. I wouldn't trust them for long-term storage. They're handy for moving data around, not necessarily most reliable potentially for keeping data on there, especially given the way a lot of people treat their USB sticks, right? They put them on their keychain, toss them in a pocket, whatever. <laughs> Near magnets, heat, I mean, lose them. A lot of cameras have high dynamic range technology. Now yes. it could be coming to a TV near you. How does it work, and why could it be a game changer for television? Well, you know, like any tech, you know, it's it's uh, text being developed first, and the content's not really there yet, especially when it comes to uh, home theater. But um, as I've said before, I think 4K is one of those technologies that, for the vast majority of people, doesn't make a lot of sense because they really can't see the difference. Um, so high dynamic range. What's cool about that is uh, Dolby's de uh, demoed uh, their technology as well. Is that you, you'll be able to um, get um, a much wider uh, luminance range. Uh, Deeper blacks, much, much, much uh, brighter uh, whites, uh, really smooth tonality across all the uh, the uh, colors, to uh, create something that it doesn't matter how close you sit. You know, if you're you know right up against a TV, you're sitting across a large room, um, but you're going to get a really nice, vibrant image potentially compared to what you could uh, currently get out of uh, out of your TV. You look at the typical TV or even computer monitor, and then you look outside, and the difference in in the brightness is really dramatic. And uh, high dynamic range TVs are trying to make uh, what you see on TV uh, look closer to real life. Make yeah. my ophthalmologist unnecessary. Well, but you have to ask yourself, how many people are watching content on small screens? Really on the mobiles, on the tablets, on you know, I, I I'm a I'm a bit of a skeptic having to do with this like we all sit there and stare at this high definition thing that's supposed to make it look like you're you're looking outside because how much more information is that giving me? I don't know. I just, well, I'll say this, I'm too, critic. is I'm someone who's really into this stuff, and I'm happy to watch my existing uh, 1080p non-HDR TV um, in, a, in a darkened uh, living room. Most people, they probably have a sunroom or a really uh, bright room, and something like an HDR TV could really cut through that light, too. So even for day-to-day -day usage, it could be pretty oh, great. Oh, I see. So in that, okay, I, I'll, I'll get that one, but still, anyway. Here now <laughs> is Mike in Washington, D.C. Mike, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I was listening earlier when you guys were talking about the kind of the, the changing dynamic between Apple and Microsoft and yes. IBM and uh, and Google, and I've always wondered what Microsoft's core value proposition was when they jumped into the, the phone marketplace. 
I mean, Apple's always been really good with hardware, and they've been really good with hardware integration. Google's always been really good with software and uh, software integration. So the integration is the key word there. How does Microsoft differentiate itself in a market that's kind of already got the two big things that are making people want to buy phones? I think the goal is uh, one ring to rule them all. I think the goal is we'll have an operating system that's going to work great on a desktop, going to work great on a laptop, going to work great on a tablet. Oh, they've on the they've proven that clearly. And, and, you know, I mean, they also came up with the Zune, <laughs> and the Zune is probably fine. But I mean, just because they attempt to do something, you know, doesn't mean they're going to actually accomplish it. And and um, they do some things well, and. Some things are poor. I mean, by the way, Apple hasn't always hit home runs, by the way. When sure. the woman Deborah called in that. earlier, I mean, they have a, they want a lot of bad, bad products that uh, they can overcome. So I think they're trying to have the one ring rules ball. And, boy, with, with tactile interfaces, it hap- I don't know, it's a hap- with tactile interfaces, it's pretty hard to scale different sizes for them. Well, I think part of it is that they're trying to go for a tech ecosystem, yeah. okay, where um, you know, I'm agnostic. I don't care what you're using on what of our Microsoft products. But now they're sort of expanding and saying, all right, maybe you don't want to stay on our Microsoft products. We'll go with that tech ecosystem, but we're going to expand to other ecosystems too. Um, because at the end of the day, guess what's the king of it all? Content. It's what ki- it's what kept Kindle going. It's what Amazon is 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 um, you know successful with. It's Content is what is, matters to a lot of people. Well, right. transportation also matters, so we're talking drones. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sure. <laughs> drones are most often associated with targeted killings in war zones, but the popularity of hobby drones is putting these small mini helicopters in the air for all kinds of reasons, good and bad. Some drones carry video cameras to photograph nature or survey disaster areas, but others carry spray paint cans and mark <laughs> billboards with graffiti. Do you have a hobby drone? Give us a call. How do you use it? 800-433-8850. Allison, one example of drones in the service of a good cause, nature conservation, is in Jamaica. How are drones using photo, uh, how are photo drones being used there to stop illegal fishing? Well, it's all about the eye and the sky and being able to see just enough information to figure out that people are overfishing, people are poaching, people are where they're not supposed to be. And these little things that honestly look like toys, I mean, they really look like some of our little automated toys, are actually capturing enough imagery um, to tell uh, the, the, the governments there um, not just in Jamaica, Mexico's doing the same thing, um, is taking a look at, hey, who's doing what and why? Um, and, you know, and and what's important is that um, the cameras that are able to, you know, the technology of the cameras have gotten good enough now so that you really can see from the air a lot more than you could before. And that's helping um, really identify uh, places for help, places uh, that are that are illegal, and, and so on. It's, it's pretty exciting. Years of overfishing and ship traffic have degraded the Caribbean's coral reef systems, which are important nurseries for countless fish species and others. And the endangered coral reefs around Jamaica are getting that new protection from eyes in the sky. So, John Giroy, when you take that next vacation in Jamaica, don't be caught running around overfishing where you're not supposed to. Meanwhile, A New York City graffiti artist attached a spray paint can to a drone (laughs) and used it to tag a giant billboard there. You can see a short video of that drone spray painting the billboard on our website, (laughs) kojoshow.org. So they can be used for mischief, too. No wonder you love them. How much spare time can you possibly have in your life, you know? I mean, you have so much spare time that you have, try to figure out how you can get a can of spray paint to, to connect to a, a drone and go up and do some damage well, to it's, some... Well, it's six stories tall, and it's, you know... It's actually and a this... time saver. Think about the ladder <laughs> yeah. you need to find, how you need to scale that building. You can do this in minutes now. And this person considers themselves an artist and a vandal. His name is Katsu. He's a robotic gra- graffiti artist and vandal. Um, so, you and know, I love he... the music accompanying video. I know, it's really, it's, it's special. It's, it's creating an identity for him. Doesn't he have to pay the mortgage or, you know, doesn't he have to buy don't food? Pay a I lot mean... more after he gets caught. Well, <laughs> and this is... But you have this... the state paying his, his residents real soon when he gets caught, huh? But, you know, it, it, this really does beg the idea of what is private, what's safe, 
what's really legal. And you know what? The more tools we give people, the more they're going to find things to do with them. Okay? Right. We're going to find those lines pretty quickly as we keep increasing the uh, prol proliferation of some of these tools. Here in Washington, John, a man flying a gyrocopter landed on the lawn of the U.S. Capitol last month, and a small drone crashed into a tree on the White House South Lawn back in January. What do these incidents say about the ability of radar to pick up these flying objects and stop them if they pose a threat? Neither of these two um, incidents were picked up on radar. I heard the testimony on C-SPAN of uh, uh, the Air Force general talking about it, and he was very convincing and a good, strong voice, but he was helpless. I mean, I, I think what Bill just brought up is this is a brave new world of, you know, uh, I'm in a horse and Kojo comes up in a car, and we've got to figure out what the rules are for the roads with these two. So all of a sudden we have unmanned vehicles which is probably the preferred phrase, and, and what are the rules for them? And I think what happens is you push the – it's like having a two-year-old. Push the boundary, push the boundary, put – no, you can't jump out in front of the bus, okay? Put, and then they'll try to jump out in front of the bus. And so they're going to push it, and I think what's going to have to happen is there's going to be innovators going to come up with new products going to detect these things. I see innovators right now coming up with that, and I'm sure there's kickstarting where they can detect smaller vehicles than the standard um, – Radar can. But they're also talking about geofencing, okay? In other words, trying to come up with ways to um, fence off people from uh, using computers to fence people away from things. Um, so just as much as people can have access through the technologies, they can also um, have limits as well. Got to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be talking about the new Apple Watch. Do you have one? Give us a call, 800-433-8850. What do you think? Are you planning to buy an Apple Watch? What feature do you find most appealing, most intriguing? 800-433-8850. If you've called already, stay on the line. We will get to your calls. You can also send us a tweet at Kojo Show or email to kojo at wamu.org. I'm Kojo Nandi. Coming up at one, a new heroin epidemic, how a surge in prescription painkillers is pushing addicts towards this deadly drug. Today at one on the Kojo Nam, the show on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at kojoshow.org. It's 12.44, partly cloudy, 80 degrees. I'm Pat Brogan. Kojo returns in just a moment after Kojo at 2 o'clock on Fresh Air, the amazing pig. They're intelligent and curious. They can run 30 miles an hour, jump 3 feet high and smell a morsel of food seven miles away. We speak with a journalist who talks with us about swine and the impact of modern industrial pig farming on the animals and the rest of us. His new book, Pigtails. We'll talk all about it starting at 2 on Fresh Air. Mostly cloudy today. Numerous showers, isolated thunderstorms, and a high of 84. Support for WAMU 88.5 comes from Folger Theater, where Tom Stoppard's absurdist tragicomedy Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead about Hamlet's lesser-known compatriots is on stage beginning May 12th. Tickets available at folger.edu. And from Casey Trees, releasing its seventh annual tree report card for D.C. More about D.C.'s B-minus grade at caseytrees.org. And from American University, Washington College of Law, readying leaders in law with classroom and experiential offerings in litigation, commercial, international, and administrative law. Washington College of Law, preparing students for practice. Welcome back. The computer guys and gal are here. The long-awaited Apple Watch went on sale last month, although there aren't many stores that carry it yet. Mail orders reportedly the best bet right now. The early conclusion from reviewers, you may not need an Apple Watch, but once you wear it for a week and learn to use it, you'll probably enjoy having it. Allison, a lot of tech, lot of tech reviewers have been testing this new Apple Watch, and one of the early discoveries is that if you have tattoos on your wrist, the watch can't give you an accurate heart rate reading. Why not? <laughs> it's about the ink blocking the sensor, uh, the light sensor that's, uh, that it's using to figure out your heart rate. Um, I mean, basically, there's a lot of gadgets on this watch. Um, and, uh, and of course, you know, <laughs> when you go and test a watch, did you test it with people that have ink on their, on their wrist? Now, if you have a tattoo Actually, on your leg... Just to cut in for a second, I will say that... Yeah. Uh, the Apple um, community, 
a lot of tattoo tattooed <laughs> folks there. So <laughs> I think would have found this out. But it could be a case of you know maybe there wasn't a, a solution. So they just had no. to live with it. Sometimes our body decorations are more important than our health. But just, <laughs> just reminding people, it's not about a tattoo that's on your leg. Okay, you can have those tattoos. It's really just right about the wrist area, and and it's because basically the light is actually measuring um, measuring uh, the 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 blood that's going through um, your your wrist. And so it's reflecting back a different color. And if it can't reflect back that co- different color, it's not seeing what it needs to see to, to do that. Anti-tattooist. That's what I say. Well, Another I say. glitch is in the feature that reminds you to stand up <laughs> once an hour. You have to have that reminder. I love that reminder. The the thing is, it's no, it's it's. it's how, just how lazy can we possibly? Be? We forget to stand up. We once can forget to stand up. It's true when you're like working hard on something you're writing. Nobody but anyway, forces you to breathe either. I guess. I know. I know. Well, not everybody's got walking desks or whatever. Anyway, but so here's the thing: is that it it reminds you to stand up, and so then what the sensor's doing is is looking at the movement that you have of standing up. So that's the inaccuracy. It should be trying to figure out if you're already standing. If you're already standing and it's told you to stand up, then it doesn't get what's going on. All right. And so what happens is you get inaccurate data um, in terms of your standing. Well, there are already add-ons to improve the watch, John. One is a battery life extender, but it doesn't look very comfortable. How does it work? <laughs> I got to use this line. They're going to get the band back together. <laughs> They're going to have different bands out there. <laughs> They're going to have different bands out there that's going to amplify some of the, the weaknesses, the battery capability. You have to plug it in every night, I think. And it'll last for one day, whatever that might be, 18 hour days. I don't, maybe Kojo's 22 hour days, but uh, so it'll last for a day. So I think there are ways to work around this battery. But many, many of the technologies, it seems to kind of hark back to this little issue of batteries where the breakthroughs haven't been there. Breakthroughs in so many other areas, but few in the battery areas. So We'll have to see if some entrepreneur can come up with a, a different type of a band that will increase the battery life for Allison is predicting that other companies will jump in and start making less expensive bands for the new Apple Watch. Oh, yes. Because, well, first of all, it's got this easy on, easy off um, attaching system. Um, and they expected that they would be able to sell bands. But the problem is, there's, you know, the, the cheapest band you can you can get from Apple is 50 bucks for one of their sports bands. I'm not going to spend it for plastic, um, you know. And then the next uh, the next um, bands that you could get are for 150 dollars. So there is a very big price point differential there that I think that people can jump into um, for bands. And because really, this is about jewelry. This is about um, making it go with what your you know your look is for that day, and it's exciting. It's very cool, um, but you know it's also about that you know not only how you look, but how it makes you feel, so that you can have that glanceable moment um, of looking at your watch with people not noticing. And I, I have to tell you, I was uh, spoke to a Apple user group meeting a couple Saturdays ago, and after the meeting, people came up to me and asked me some questions. First thing the guy did looked at my watch. Wow, the fascinating watch I have there. So he didn't ask about what kind of phone I had, or what kind of computer I had, what kind Straight of watch. Watch. I had so this is the focus. I this is it's amazing how you know Apple can wag that tail to the whole world. Joe in Woodbridge, Virginia, would like to t- talk about the Apple Watch. Joe, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Good afternoon, Coach. How are you? I'm well. Good. I just want to comment on the fact that Apple has decided for this initial release not to have or allow any in-store purchases. It was online only, and I think one of the big mistakes they made there is in that. By the time I actually woke up at 3 a.m. to try to get in on the pre-order, they were already sold out. So I just wanted to con- you know, talk to the panel and see what their comments are about the method that they use to try to, to release the watch. And then the other point I'd like to make is that even for the people that got in on the pre-orders, they're looking at July and August shipments. Right. So it'll be a while, Bill Harlow? I mean, it's, it's clearly a constrained product. I think part of the reason they might have gone so much to like pre-order and have it shipped versus just pick it up in store is because um, they knew it was going to be popular. And you know, historically, the Apple stores have been complete mob scenes. So maybe they're trying to make it you know, a more pleasant experience, especially because they needed a way to get people in to try things on. They, they offered that as a service before you went and bought the watch. And if you're trying to try on the watch and there's just chaos while people are waiting, it, it, it may not work out. Now, if you change careers and become a rapper and get a million followers on Twitter, then Apple will somehow magically make a way to present you with an Apple Watch so you can, you know, brag about it and tweet about it and show your friends. That's what they're doing, too. They're planting seeds. They never did this before with Tim Cook. They're starting to do this with celebrities. Oh, man. i got to get my watch. <laughs> i, I got to get my rap career down. Oh. Daddy G. <laughs> Thank you, Joe, for your call. 
Um, you've heard of malware, spyware, and adware. Now you have to be beware of scareware. <laughs> Email telling you that your computer may be infected with a virus and suggesting you call a certain number for help. Have you received a scareware message? What did you do? Give us a call, 800-433-8850. Bill, how do I recognize scareware, and what should I do with it? Well, it can be if, if it's in an email, you can just ignore it. Um, but uh, if it's on a web page, a lot of times there'll be um, graphics on the page that look like a uh, pop-up from your computer operating system saying you may be infected and you should click here. And you know, my take on, on these sorts of things is I know what tools are installed in my computer, so I'll, I'll check myself. Thank you very much. And even if you are concerned, you know, don't click on it. Go and download a trusted free uh, malware scanner and run that instead. But what I find fascinating is um, there was actually a, a really neat um, account of what it's like to go through that. And what I thought was so interesting about that was that uh, some of these guys will use um, publicly freely available tools from legitimate companies. One example, they use support.me from LogMeIn. By the way, this is really good. They had tape recordings of, of the conversation, yeah. too. This is wonderful. It's a wonderful story. And, you know, they, they do a lot to sound legit. And one thing I thought was telling, too, is asking if you're over 50 to get the senior citizen's discount, which kind of, you know, it's like, okay, so they're targeting certain people potentially. <laughs> but still, I mean, it's, it's really easy to get caught up in this, especially when they weave such an effective lie. I, I could see that being a real issue if you're not careful. Well, actually, it's a teachable moment. If you go and listen to that, yeah. uh, that interaction between um, online, we'll, we'll give you the link, but um, – if you go and listen to the interaction between this reporter and uh, and this fake service, really, it can show you how scary um, and and how real it can sound um, between you and 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 somebody that's really trying to scam you. It's a beautiful lie and the ugly truth. And this guy can really lie well on oh, this yeah. recording. It sounds wonderful. Back to the telephones. Here is. Yes, Mike. In Laurel, Maryland. Mike, <laughs> you're on the air. Go ahead, please. I'm just calling everybody Mike today. It's, it's one of those I get to a job and sometimes there's three of us there. <laughs> so I'm calling back about the ultra-high-definition television. Costco has a Samsung set. It's like a 55 or 60-something, and they have an internal loop within the set, and it's showing this ultra-high-definition stuff that was all shot in Switzerland. If you look at that, and then you look at the regular high-def 1080p sets that are all scattered around, your jaw will drop mm -hmm. at the difference. That is absolutely and the true. The rest of the stuff looks like old, regular SD kind of television compared to what this 4K stuff looks like right now. Well, so Mike, your jaw dropped, but did your wallet open? <laughs> Good question. Well, here's the thing. These <laughs> sets are going for the same price we would have paid for a set back 10 years ago. Right. It's definitely when trickling this whole down. When started out. Yeah. I would, I would say it's, this, though. It's starting over again, and it's a whole new thing. Yep. I would say this, though, is you've got to look at uh, how close you're sitting in the Costco to where it might be in your actual house. <laughs> that's true. Um, and that's where you know, some of the disappointment can kind of set in. I'm not saying you shouldn't buy a 4K TV because the best TVs now are going to be 4K. Um, I bought a premium 1080p TV, and it was one of the last ones um, of that era. But uh, you may not get the benefit of the, of, of the resolution itself unless you're sitting at an optimal distance. And if you Google, like, you know, 4K viewing distance calculator, you'll see that uh, that's kind of jaw-dropping, too, how you have to have your nose pressed against some of these TVs if they're on the smaller side. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for your call, uh, Mike. John, John, Just call me Mike. <laughs> also in the category of things yes, to be aware of, Google is starting to adjust search results on mobile devices to favor websites that are optimized for mobile. What does that mean for users? Well, what's going on here is is Google is responding to the users. If three to five searches are done on a mobile device on Google, so what they're trying to do is they're trying to reward uh, websites that are what are called responsive. And so what a responsive website is, is if you go to WAMU.org and you look at it on your desktop computer and then you look at it on your phone and, and it's pretty much similar the way you can scroll through it, that's what responsive design is. It makes it look similar on, on different types of devices. And, and this, is, this is just if you're doing a search on a mobile device itself. And um, what's happening is that there are companies who've made the mistake of making their sites old-fashioned and, and, and not look good on a smartphone, and they're going to have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars to respond to this because Google, Google views Bing as a competitor. The Bing car is driving through my neighborhood, and they're saying, well, if we don't respond to the needs of our viewers, our searchers, then Bing sure will. So they're, so they're going to deprecate sites now. And I think what's going to happen is going to transition to the desktop as well. If you're not responsive, bang, you're going to hit. On to Laverne in Washington, D.C. Laverne, your turn. Yes, hi. I downloaded one of those um, internet 
provider, uh, whether it be Fox, Chrome, or Google. And lo and behold, I ended up with a 24-7 malware service on my computer that I just could not get rid of and was wondering where it came from until I noticed the date that it appeared. And I tried to uninstall it, um, and it turned out that it was in three different places that it had to be uninstalled. And I eventually got it uninstalled after I called um, my uh, people who make my computer, and the technician was kind enough, even though he didn't have to, he was kind enough to walk me through this and uninstall it for me. And it's just sad because they take Scary. advantage of people who, yep. you know, are not necessarily tech savvy, and it was a case where you could unclick it. But because we're moving so quickly a lot yep. of the time and you don't know what's going on, you inadvertently um, click on it, and you end up with something that could crash your computer. Scary scareware. Thank you, for, thank you for providing us with that example of it, because that is indeed how it works. It's that time when we choose our app of the month. John, you're choosing the Uber app this month? Well, only because the last 10 people I asked, I interview people all the time. I talk to them, meet them at meetings and street and events, and, and everyone, I say, what's your favorite app? Uber, Uber, Uber. Does anyone in this town not have the Uber app on their phone? I mean, there's one person in the room who you're the only person that doesn't have the Uber. It's just, it's the most popular app in town? I guess it is. Um, everybody I know has one. Allison, your app makes spring cleaning easier. It's called Cleaning Checklist. Yes, basically it gives you all of these different cleaning options and then you you make your checklist and then it actually reminds you of all the things you have to do to clean. And since I've been doing a lot of cleaning lately um, in preparation for moving, I'm, uh, I definitely need this app. I'm not getting that app. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to clean. Bill, talk about App Camp for Girls and the sweet setup. Yeah, so um, App Camp for Girls is a really neat organization where they mentor uh, young women on how to uh, build apps. And this is the first one they've released. It's called App Camp Quiz Compendium, 99 cents, a lot of neat little personality quizzes. And uh, it'll be cool to see if they release more stuff over time. The Suite Setup, great website. If you are an Apple user and you're looking for a variety of apps and services that work with those devices, uh, I'd start there. Bill Harlow, he's a hardware and software technician for Macs and PCs at Mid-Atlantic Consulting Incorporated. John Gilroy is director for business development for BLT Global Ventures. And Alison Drew and Steitl is too long. We don't have enough time. <laughs> Chief Futurist of the University of Maryland Division of Research and co-director of the Future of Information Alliance at the University of Maryland. Thank you all for listening. I'm Kojo Namdi. Coming up tomorrow on the Kojo Namdi show, the serious consequences of satire, an attack on a Texas cartoon contest and protests over a literary award, reignite debate over the limits of free speech. Then at one, more than 20% of D.C.'s seniors worry about getting enough food, an issue that's growing with an aging population. The Kojo Namdi show, noon till 2 tomorrow on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at kojoshow.org. 12.59, good afternoon, this is WAMU 88.5, heading up to 1 o'clock, partly cloudy, 80 degrees. At some point, it's going to become mostly cloudy. We'll see some numerous showers and isolated thunderstorms today, high 85. WAMU 88.5 is your listener-supported NPR news station in the greater Washington, D.C. region. You can support the Kojo Namdi Show and all the regional coverage you value by becoming a member today. Click the Donate button at WAMU.org. And thanks.